All right. Well, why don't we open up our Bibles to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 20 this morning. Acts 19 verses 8 through 20. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, since our reading of God's authoritative word, may the fear of the Lord come upon all those who hear it. You know, being a, a pastor, sometimes I get some pretty strange requests from people who are outside of the church. And what I mean by strange is that I, I get requests that really have nothing to do with my skill set. It could be an elderly woman who needs help setting up her wireless printer. It could be a homeless man that wants me to find a job for him. And while I, I try my best with some of these things, I, I think many of these people don't really understand what a pastor is trained to do. But, but every now and then, the, the, the strange requests come from inside the church from a believer who wants me to do something that is, that is not particularly Christian, but has pagan roots. For example, at, at, at my old church, there was this one time when a man believed that there were demonic spirits living within our church building because there were Masonic symbols found within the bell tower. And, and he was wondering if I could exercise the demons. And so he brought me this this 10-page paper that was given to him by a, a I guess, well-known modern-day exorcist who just happened to specialize in the removal of 
Masonic demons. Why, not knowing really what to say, I I told the man, well, I'll I'll read over your papers and I'll get back to you. And so that's what I did. I I, I read them over. And what what I read through was this tedious and formulaic process that was filled with rituals and incantations as well as the the calling out of specific names of demons. And truth be told, what what these papers proposed, what this exorcist recommended was, was almost as demonic as masonry itself. And bottom line, they, they, these were simple. They were, they were simply pagan rituals that had been glossed over with, with Christian language. Kind of a, an amalgamation of the Christian faith and the practices of the occult. And, and so I told this man that I, that I really didn't feel comfortable in doing these things. Here's the thing. What, what this man was suggesting was a form of what is known as syncretism. I don't know if any of you have ever heard that word before, but, but syncretism is when you combine two different religions or, or two different sets of belief in an effort to form some sort of commonality. And this can occur without someone even knowing that they're doing it. Perhaps they were raised believing that the world functioned in a certain way, and, and as they got older, they were introduced to, to new ideas. And so they decide to, to take on this new set of beliefs without really understanding the distinctions that make those beliefs different from their previous beliefs. And so what they end up doing is they, they combine the two together, often to the detriment of both, right? And unfortunately, we, we see this all the time in Christianity. And you take, for instance, um, the, the word faith movement. I don't know if you've heard of that before. And here we have people who who claim to be Christians, and yet what they're doing is they are incorporating this idea that that a person can speak into existence the reality that they want. This, this, a lot of people call it name it and claim it, right? (laughs) Heard that before? Um, Well, this concept, concept of naming it and claiming it it actually has its origins in, in the magical practices of the occult. That, that you can use certain words in a certain way to manipulate reality. Or, or consider what the Catholics do when they pray to the saints. That has its roots in both animism and necromancy. That, that a person can speak to the dead and that the dead will hear, hear your voice and perhaps bless you because of it. You, you see, syncretism, it, it, it can be a very, very dangerous thing because what it tends to do, it, it asks the person to put their trust in something other than Jesus Christ. It, it wants you to take your focus off of him and place it in something different altogether. And this is what was happening in the city of Ephesus. The, the pagan world, the, the world of the occult was beginning to creep into the church. And I'm not sure the people even realized that it was happening. Let's, let's consider how this all began. 
How, how did the gospel come to this city in the first place? Well, if you remember from last Sunday, we, we had talked about how the gospel came to Ephesus, uh, first through the Apostle Paul and then through Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos and and then when Paul returned, you know, Paul, what did he do first, right? He, he went to the synagogue, like he always does in every city. And he, he proclaimed Christ crucified to the Jews there. And these Ephesian Jews, what did they do? They expressed interest in the gospel. They wanted Paul to stay. And yet Paul couldn't remain. If you remember, he, he, had, he was under a vow and needed to return to Jerusalem. But just because Paul had to leave, that didn't mean that the city would not be without a witness. For we had Priscilla and Aquila, right? These, this Jewish Christian couple uh, who were setting up their tent-making business in that city now, they were able to provide a gospel witness while Paul was away. And more than that, then, then God also sent this other man, right? This man named Apollos, a Jew from Alexandria, a, a learned man who was also a gifted speaker. And he was preaching about Jesus. And yet there was something amiss, remember? He only knew the baptism of John. And so Priscilla and Aquila needed to take this man aside and, and show him the way of God uh, more accurately. Well, this led to Apollos becoming a great evangelist. And yet he wouldn't remain in Ephesus for very long, for the Lord had called him to go to Corinth in order to strengthen the church that was there. And yet in God's timing, when Apollos left, what did we see? The Apostle Paul returned. And upon his arrival, if you remember, he ran into 12 other disciples who had also had an errant view when it came to the gospel. Just like Apollos, they only knew the baptism of John. And more than that, these men, they, they said that they hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul needed to correct them. He needed to lead them to the true Jesus. They were baptized in Jesus' name, and then God gave them assurance that, they were, that what they were now believing was the truth. Remember, God poured out his Holy Spirit upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. That's where we left off last Sunday. But as you can see, just from even where we were at, a danger was growing within the church. A danger where there was these errant forms of the gospel being propagated throughout the world. And the reason this was such a danger was because that much of the New Testament scriptures had yet to be written. And until they were... Jesus would be establishing his church through the authority of his apostles. And yet with these errant teachings, as well as with those who were teaching them, how would one know who was from God and, and who wasn't? Well, the answer was simple. Jesus would provide signs and wonders as a means of validating the teachings of his apostles. And this is what we've seen as we've gone through the book of Acts, is it not? Jesus granting signs and wonders, for example, to the apostle Peter, right? Proving that, that the message that he had spoken was the truth. And now right here in Ephesus, we see him doing the same thing with his apostle Paul. 
Bottom line, because there were these new threats to the gospel message, King Jesus was directing his people to his apostle and to the message that he preached in order that the truth would prevail. Let's, let's see how this plays out. Look, look again at our passage. Look at verses 8 through 10. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so, similar to what we had seen previously in, in Corinth, Paul had worn out his welcome in the synagogue, right? And this, this seems to happen to him all the time. Too many of the Jews had rejected the gospel message and they began seeing the teachings of Jesus as a threat to their own stability. And yet Paul, he, he had learned from what had happened to him in the past and, and before things got out of hand, before they put some plan together to either lynch him or arrest him, Luke tells us that Paul withdrew from the synagogue and he took the believers with him. And we are also told that, that he began teaching in this hall of Tyrannus. Now, we don't know much about this hall or who Tyrannus was. Uh, Tyrannus, uh, the, his, the name means tyrant. Perhaps he was a, a, a Greek professor that was especially hard on his students. I don't know. <laughs> but, the, but what we do know is that Paul was able to teach there. For some reason, this space was made available to Paul each and every day. Maybe he had it in with this tyrannical professor. I don't know. Um, but he was there using this building every day for two straight years. From there, he was able to preach the gospel. I mean, think about this. Two straight years. That's, that's six months longer than he was in Corinth. What this means is that God had given, not only to Paul, but to his church, a, a long time of peace in the city of Ephesus. And because they were meeting in the hall of Tyrannus, Paul, Paul was preaching from a public forum. A form in which all people were welcome to come and listen. And what does Luke tell us? He, he tells us that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now I know he, Luke is using hyperbolic language there, but, but what he is saying is that, is that Paul's ministry was very, very effective. So when he says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that every single person, but what it does mean is that the gospel had reached the ears of pretty much the entire province. That the good news of Jesus Christ came to, to every city and town and village within Asia Minor. In fact, we know that a number of churches were formed throughout this province. For when we get to the book of Revelation, what do we find? We find the seven churches, Right? And those seven churches are all located in this region. 
In other words, the message of Jesus Christ was was gaining traction. And and Paul, well, he became this well-known speaker throughout the province. Any who wanted to hear him speak, all they would have to do was travel to Ephesus and go to the hall of Tyrannus. And yet as the church was growing and as there seemed to be this time of peace and prosperity, God's people had to deal with other threats. Threats such as I mentioned earlier. For there, there were also these false teachers and, and errant gospels that were floating around. And within the city of Ephesus, there was a, a particular kind of threat that, that was directly linked to the pagan practices of the people of Ephesus. Let's let's see how this plays out. Look at verses 11 and 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, this seems strange to us, does it not? I mean, when I hear this, I, I think of the, the infomercial of the evangelist who sells a bottle of water from the Jordan River and give me 20 bucks and you'll be healed, right? I prayed over this napkin. I'll mail it to you if you give me $15, right? Um, that's, that's not what's going on here. In order for us to understand exactly what is going on, we must first understand something about Ephesus. You see, Ephesus, it it was the capital of Asia Minor. It was a massive city for its day, boasting a population of over 250,000 people. And because this city was located on the, on the Caister River, just four miles away from the Aegean Sea, Ephesus, it, it became the, the epicenter of trade for all of Asia Minor. All the seafaring ships would, would sail up the river and, and cast anchor in the calm waters that was the harbor of Ephesus. And so much of the commerce was controlled from this city. And as a result, Ephesus grew to have great influence over the culture of Asia Minor as well. And what dominated the minds of the people within this city were really two things. One, the worship of Artemis, and two, the magical practices of the occult. Now, Artemis was a a deity uh, that they had built a temple to that was so large that it was actually considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You see, Artemis was the goddess of the moon and the goddess of the hunt. She was a watcher over both mankind and and the wild beasts. And she she was said to govern the the relationship between the two, making sure that that men wouldn't abuse their powers in their attempts to subdue their animals. Um, And yet people would pray to Artemis when they would go on the hunt, uh, asking for her blessing. And every May within the city of Ephesus, they would hold this annual festival to this goddess. People from all around the providence would come to the city in order to worship her. And, and while they were there, they would, they would purchase these miniature statues of her 
that they would parade around down the streets as they made their way to the temple. This was one of the reasons that the city was filled with smiths and craftsmen. And yet it wasn't just the worship of Artemis that kept the craftsmen in business, but also this practice of magic. For people would also purchase these protective amulets, as well as expensive scrolls on which were inscribed these secret incantations. And these amulets and these incantations, that what they were supposed to do, they were supposed to heal the sick and to ward off evil spirits. And this was big business in a major city like Ephesus. To, to give you some sort of idea of what this is like, we, we do see similar practices throughout the world today. For example, when I was living in Thailand, when I was teaching English there, I had this one student who, who you could tell the moment you saw him that he was made of money, right? He was wealthy. He, he wore this expensive, nice, fine clothing. He drove a luxurious car. He, he carried with him three different iPhones, all of which seemed to be in constant use as he conducted his business. But what stood out most about this man was the amount of gold that was wrapped around his neck. He looked like the Thai version of Mr. T. <laughs> if you, if, I, I'm dating myself. If you don't know who Mr. T is, Google him. In fact, I gave this guy a nickname. I called him Mr. Thai. <laughs> now, these gold chains, they, they were thick, and attached to each one were these different, about that big, gold amulets. And... So I asked him one day, when my curiosity got the best of me, I asked him, why do you wear all that gold? Do you know what he told me? He said that they were his gods who protected him and gave him good luck. He then went on to tell me the specifics of what each one of them did. You know, one was to bring him fortune and wealth. Uh, a second was to ward off sickness. There was another that was, that was there to keep the evil spirits away. And then he even had one that he claimed could deflect bullets. It kind of made me wonder what type of business he was in, you know. <laughs> Yet this man truly believed that these amulets were helping him. And so he refused to, to part, part ways with them. He, he did not want to take them off at all. And it was this type of thinking that controlled the hearts and the minds of the people of Ephesus. They, they, they were a superstitious bunch, trusting in these amulets and these secret incantations for health and prosperity and for protection. And yet, what do we see God doing in our verses? God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that not even... So that even a handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. You see, with these handkerchiefs, with these aprons, these pieces of clothing that had touched Paul's skin, these were a, a materialistic medium that Jesus was using in order to demonstrate his power. He, he was condescending to, to what these people knew. It was, it was his way of communicating to them in a manner that they understood. 
bottom line, he was using their own superstitions to point them to his messenger, to the Apostle Paul. And by pointing them to the Apostle Paul, what he was ultimately pointing them to was Paul's message, the good news of Jesus Christ. He wanted them to know that the gospel that Paul was preaching from the hall of Tyrannus was the truth. It was his way of authenticating the gospel to the people of Ephesus. And he did so through the use of these handkerchiefs and these aprons. And yet, handkerchiefs and aprons weren't the only means that Jesus had at his disposal. Look at verses 13 and 14. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So what exactly is an itinerant Jewish exorcist? That's a lofty description, isn't it? Well, an itinerant exorcist, they were men who, who would travel from town to town, from city to city, attempting to cast out demons from those who were being possessed and tormented by them. And the way that these exorcists would cast these demons out was through the use of these amulets that I talked about earlier and, and the complex secret incantations that were on their scrolls. And often they would invoke the names of other spirits to aid them in their tasks. Spirits who, who were deemed to be more powerful than the demons they were casting out. And yet these Jewish exorcists who we come across, they were doing things slightly different. For the name that they would invoke typically would be the name of Yahweh. They believe that by calling upon their God that they would be able to curry favor with him in order to get the results that they desired. In other words, they believed that they could manipulate the name of the Lord for their own purposes. Now, when you boil this all down, what you had with these Jewish exorcists were men who were practicing a form of syncretism. This is what I mentioned earlier when I began my message. These men were combining their Jewish faith with the superstitions that go along with the, with the, with the pagan culture of their time. They were trying to blend the religion of their own people with the magical practices of the occult. And so this brings us to these seven sons of Sceva, right? Who, who are they? Well, well, Luke tells us that this Sceva was a high priest. And yet he wasn't a high priest in the, in the typical Jewish sense that we think of. He wasn't serving <coughs> at the temple in Jerusalem. Rather, he was a high priest in this Jewish magical cult. And now he was training his seven sons to follow in his footsteps. And yet what do we see them doing in our passage for today? Something that was unique. They were invoking both the name of Jesus and the name of Paul. They, they, they were trying to use these names in order to gain an advantage over the demonic. And apparently these, these men had heard of all the miraculous happenings that were going on throughout Ephesus. 
how God was using the Apostle Paul to heal the sick and to free people who were possessed. They heard about the handkerchiefs, right? How they were able to cure diseases and release a man from a demon's clutches. And so now these seven sons of Sceva wanted this same type of power. They, they wanted to gain influence and credibility in order that they might make a profit off the name of Jesus. And yet God wasn't having it, was he? Instead, he would use this demon to teach these men a lesson. Look, look at verses 15 and 16. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? This is wild, isn't it? I mean, this demon knew the name of Jesus, as he should, but... but he also recognized the name of the Apostle Paul, Jesus' messenger. You see, Paul wasn't just famous here on earth, but he, he was famous in the spiritual realm as well. And yet when it came to these seven sons of Sceva, these men who are now invoking the name of Jesus, well, they were nothing to this demon. Who are you to invoke those names thinking that you can overpower me? Dear friends, the name of Jesus is not some magical formula that you can just use for your own benefit. He, he is not like the pagan demigods, demigods who you can just summon in order to fight your battles for you. No. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He holds all authority over all things. And yet when you think of him in the way that these seven sons of Sceva did, as someone you can just use for your own purposes, well then not only have you disrespected his name, but you have also put yourself in a position to be under his judgment. Listen, the, the, the reason that the Apostle Paul could perform the miracles that he was performing, the reason he could cast out demons had nothing to do with him, but it had everything to do with the message that he was bringing. He, he was proclaiming Jesus Christ as God over all creation. He was declaring his, his kingship over all things. But not only that, he was also proclaiming Jesus as the Savior of the world, the one who died for our sins and then rose victoriously, the one who now grants eternal life to all those who turn away from their sins and trust in him. And that is why even these handkerchiefs, these, these aprons that had touched Paul's skin could be used to cast out demons because this was Jesus' way of authenticating Paul's message of validating the good news. The, the sons of Sceva had no clue when it came to the name that they were invoking. 
They did not know Jesus, and that is why they failed. They simply thought of him as a name that could be invoked for their own selfish purposes. And Jesus was going to have none of it. And that is why we see this demoniac, this, this man overpower seven men, bringing shame upon them. Because even though they spoke the name of Jesus, they did not have Jesus on their side. And so in a burst of demonic power, this, this one man was able to subdue the seven. He gave them a beating that they would never forget and in the process tore off their garments, leaving them naked and, and in shame. I can only imagine the public spectacle that this caused. I'm certain that the whole neighborhood probably would have witnessed them running out of that house stark naked. They would have been talking about what happened for weeks. And we know this to be true, for, for, for Luke tells us that the news spread. Look, look at what we read in our next verse. Look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. You see, this wild event went viral, right? It was the only thing that people could talk about. And it created such a reaction throughout Ephesus, right? It, Luke lets us know that the whole city was gripped with fear, both Jews and Greeks. And the reason they were gripped with fear was because these people now realized that the name of Jesus truly did have authority. And they learned as well that his name could not be manipulated like these other demigods, even by these professional exorcists. You see, Jesus, he is not like their pagan deities, those little gods who, who, who could be summoned at will. No. Jesus is the God of the universe, far above all creation. You don't summon him, he summons you. You see, what this, inc what this incident demonstrated, along with all the extraordinary miracles being performed by the Apostle Paul, what these things truly communicated was that all their magical and superstitious practices were absolutely useless. And that the true power resides in Jesus Christ. This one whom Paul was preaching from the hall of, hall of Tyrannus. And thus the fear of the Lord came upon everyone. And it was in this fear that many were led to repentance. Look at our next two verses. Look at verses 18 and 19. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now what I find amazing about this passage is that, is that those who were coming forward and admitting their sins 
Well, they were not unbelievers. Rather, they were believers. And what were the sins that they were confessing? They were renouncing their ties to the magical arts. And once again, this is, this is syncretism. You know, even though these people had come to Christ, even though they believed in the gospel message, they were still holding on to their superstitious practices from their past. And yet when this demon acknowledged both Jesus and Paul, well, that was a game changer. It put the fear of God in them. And as a result, many, many hearts of Christ's own people were pierced. And this fear of the Lord that they had now gained led to their public repentance. Jesus was cleansing his people. And this cleansing was seen in this public display through the burning of, of their magical scrolls. These people were determined that, that these things would no longer be a part of their lives. And, and what did Luke say? He estimated that, that the price that could have been fetched for these scrolls was around 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, I know scrolls were expensive back, back then, but that, that is a lot of scrolls. But it just goes to show the power of Jesus Christ, does it not? I mean, not only did these people renounce their pagan ways, but they were also willing to forego that which held worldly value. And all because Jesus had demonstrated to them that he is the true king of the universe. As I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon, even today there are many syncretistic practices that we see within the church. Practices such as the word faith movement. Practices such as the praying to saints. And yet what is more common than, than either of those are, are Christians who simply don't want to leave their worldly lifestyles behind. It could be a love of money. It could be a love of pleasure. It could be this need to, to, to become popular. This need to have power. You know, there are many things that are world worships, and yet because these things are said, said to be secular in nature, our world really doesn't view them as worship, right? And yet you don't need to have an amulet wrapped around your neck to have an idol. These worldly things are just as dangerous to the Christian faith as all those magical practices of the Ephesians. Dear friends, Jesus wants you to be wholly devoted to him. He, he refuses to play second fiddle to anything or to anyone. And even today, he is rooting these things out of our lives, out of the lives of his people, just as he did in Ephesus. Ask yourself, what are the idols in your own life? What are the things that God is calling you to let go of? What does he want you to root out? 
And yet when these things are rooted out, that is when we see God's kingdom grow and flourish. Look, look at our last verse. Look at verse 20. This is right after the people repented. It says this. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You see, the results of all this, it was twofold. First, the word of the Lord continued to increase, meaning that the gospel was spreading to more and more places throughout Asia Minor. But not only was it spreading, what do we see? The word of the Lord prevailed mightily. In other words, not only was it spreading out, but it was having a massive impact as well. Many were coming to faith in Jesus and all because of what had been taking place. Because the people were beginning to realize that this Jesus truly is sitting upon his throne. That is why they turned to him in repentant faith. And you know what the good news is? Jesus is still sitting on his throne today. His kingdom continues to grow. It grows as the fear of the Lord continues to turn sinful hearts into hearts that are devoted to him. Where is your heart today? Are you still holding on to that idol in your life? Or are you ready to renounce it and follow Christ? May the fear of the Lord change you from within. Let us pray. Father, we confess to you today that our hearts are, are not fully yours, that there are things in our lives that we have yet to let go of. And that is why we need your help. That is why we need your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you would establish within us a, a fear of you. Help us to realize that, that Jesus is sitting on his throne and that he will not play second fiddle to the idols within our hearts. Yet we can only change when you work in us. Only through the mighty working of your Holy Spirit can, can we find deliverance from these things. He must be the one who changes us from within. As we hear your convicting word. So open up our ears. Open up our minds and our hearts so that we might hear your voice and then help us to turn from our worldly ways in order that we might turn towards you. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.